You're listening to The Herald, normally recorded by volunteers at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre, currently being recorded from homes across Greater Glasgow. Please enjoy this week's articles. From the Glasgow Times, date Monday the 3rd of August 2020, from the news section, £15 million new homes plans back on track in Govan. Article by Katrina Stewart. New housing for Govan is firmly back on track as lockdown eases. Work has restarted on £15 million construction of 82 new homes near Govan Cross after several months at a standstill. Elder Park Housing said it was working closely with its developers, construction firm CCG, to ensure work progresses while ensuring site workers remain safe. The Scottish Government has eased restrictions on construction sites to kickstart this vital part of the economy. Elder Park Deputy Chief Executive Shirley McKnight said that the result of construction work would be welcomed by the community. Shirley said, Construction sites across the country, like so many other aspects of the economy, were halted during lockdown. But we're pleased to report that things have got moving again and it's vital new housing for our community. At all times, the safety of construction workers which has always been an essential component of the work, remains a top priority. Park Housing is working extremely closely with their contractor CZG to ensure this happens. The delay in getting these homes built has been an inevitable consequence of these last few months, which have been difficult for so many people. We know that our tenants are looking forward to this landmark development near Griffin Cross being completed as Park delivers on our promise of a new housing for our community. The development of 70 flats and 12 houses have been built at Nathan Street within sight of Govan Subway Station. It will also include the restoration of the 19th century former Hills Trust School, which has been brought to back to life as new offices for elder park housing, bringing to an end years of dereliction and giving the historic building a new lease of life. CCG Managing Director David Wiley said, As we begin to restart and recover, the health and safety of our staff, clients and communities which much we operate remains our number one priority. We've worked tirelessly throughout the lockdown to develop robust and thorough health and safety protocols to ensure we can undertake our work safely and with confidence. By working with the Construction Scotland and following the restart plan as adopted by the Scottish Government, we can ensure that the Stay Safe slogan will remain at the forefront of our activities. The Hills Trust slash Nathan Street development will be a significant contributor to the local economy of Guffin and we look forward to continuing our work with Elder Park Housing as we progress through our programme. Elder Park was originally Elder Park originally expected homes to be ready by the summer twenty twenty, with the school restoration completed first. It is hoped the first tenants will move in towards the end of the year. Local MSP Hamza Yousaf said it has been a pleasure watching the progress of Elder Park housing developments since it broke ground last year. The Scottish Government remains committed to social housing and has been working closely with partners across the housing sector to help new house building resume as quickly as it is safe to do so. I'm glad construction in this site is up and running again and look forward to seeing tenants move into their lovely new homes. And that piece was by Cachio and Stewart. From the Glasgow Times, date Monday the 3rd of August 2020, from the news section, 
Connect Community Trust faces uncertain future in dispute with Wellhouse Housing Association. Article by Catriona Stewart. A local charity that has served an Eastend community for nearly 20 years is under threat due to a stalemate with its landlord. Connect Community Trust fears for its future due to a seemingly unresolvable dispute with the housing association that owns the properties it works for. For nearly a year, trust bosses have been engaged in a back and forth with the Wellhouse Housing Association, which is now adamant Connect must move out. Wellhouse HA claims the trust has refused to sign vital legal documents and has prepared for an alternative charity to provide local services. But Connect Connect says the rent has been doubled and it cannot afford to commit to the increased costs. Harry Blackwood joined Connect as chairman six months ago and was hopeful of turning the situation around. The charity provides a wide range of services in Wellhouse and Proven Hall from the community allotments to youth services, a lunch club for pensioners and support for those with additional needs. Harry said, I grew up here so I've always been well aware of the work of the Trust and what they've done over the years trying to help to transform this local area. It was instrumental in helping to stop some of the gang fighting I used to participate in when I was a boy and it's a whole range of real term benefits for the local community. I have a 20-year career in local government, but in my role as coming in as chair, I've been quite incredulous about what's been going on. Before COVID-19 hit, I had emailed Wellhouse to arrange a moratorium and any further action until we could have a sit-down discussion to see if we could sort out a managed approach to a new relationship with me as a new chair. If that was out of the question, then I managed approach to leaving and finding somewhere else so we didn't find ourselves homeless and all our activities having to stop. Instead, we have had another lawyer's letter telling us we should have moved out by now. Although they have always been separate entities, the trust and the social landlord have long had a close relationship with community members serving on the boards of both organisations. Connect has three premises in Wellhouse. The hub, which is also the housing association's head office, Inner Zone, which it rents from Wellhouse HA, and Hub Sports, which it owns. The charity has been told it must move from the hub, where it does not pay rent but pays for utilities, with immediate effect after refusing to sign a lease agreement and pay increased rates. It rents in a zone from Wellhouse HA, but the rent there has been more than doubled from £1,000 per quarter to £2,125, which it says it cannot afford. Bosses said losing the hub in a zone would be the end of more than half a dozen services. Pauline Smith, Chief Executive of Connect, said We were instrumental in having the hub built. It was always meant to be a community facility and attracted external funding due to our work as a charity. When relationships are good, you don't really think of these things, but in hindsight we should have put ourselves on the paperwork as an ownership with them. But things have been going so well and there was a mutual benefit of what they would get out of us and what we would get out of them. Now we stand to lose our home in the hub where we've been for 16 years. I don't know where we would move to, especially as we're in the middle of a pandemic. Leslie Copeland has volunteered with Connect for 12 years, having also served on the committee of Wellhouse. She runs the charity's allotments and worked with people with additional support needs. Leslie said, I was born in Wellhouse and stayed here all my life, so I like to volunteer because there's lots of deprivation here and every little thing helps. We've tried everything, but it's at the end of the line now. 
Vice Chair of Connect, Linda Granger, runs the Lunch Club and says the hub is vital as it's the only centre with a kitchen and appropriate dining space for her pensioners. Linda, who has lived in Wellhouse for 59 years, said, This situation is ripping the heart out of the community. I hate to see pals, neighbours, friends let down. Our lunch club is a vital part of this area and we never turn anyone away. It's important for the mental health of our pensioners and cutting down on isolation. I'm quite disgusted that we might lose it, but I don't see what can happen next. In 2017, Wellhouse HA was under scrutiny from the Scottish Housing Regulator after the watchdog found significant failings at the, so- at the social landlord. A whistleblower came forward in 2014 and a series of what were called deeply disturbing issues were uncovered, including financial mismanagement and cronyism. After an investigation, a new manager was parachuted in and the regulator has now withdrawn from Wellhouse, saying he's dissatisfied with the current running of the organisation. Its new management team also says the landlord has worked extremely hard to turn its fortunes around and now must be absolutely scrupulous when it comes to any legal obligations. A spokeswoman for Wellhouse Housing Association said, As a local charity and housing association, it is a legal requirement that our tenants 800 domestic and 5 non-domestic, sign a lease, adhere to that lease and pay the rent set for the property. We cannot exclude any other party from this arrangement. As an organisation, we cannot repeat the mistake the Wellhouse Housing Association made in the past and we have taken advice from all our external advisors, including lawyers, regulators and insurers. We have an alternative provider of community services lined up who has agreed to pay the associated charges and have already completed all due diligence. During lockdown, the Trust received funds from Wellhouse HA to provide food parcels and support to the Housing Association tenants. It had hoped this showed an improvement in the relationship, but Pauline then received a lawyer's letter saying the Trust must still move with the deadline of July 17th. Pauline said the Trust could not sign the required documents because it would mean agreeing to the rent hike. She said, I completely understand the implications of what went on in the past and we would bend over backward to sort this out but we are not being listened to. Our staff and volunteers are wellhouse tenants so they are putting their tenants out of their own community. You are ultimately evicting your tenants from their own services. And that piece is by Katrina Stewart. From the Glasgow Times, date Monday the 3rd of August 2020, from the news section. Couple stillborn agony after mum develops, rarely seen illness. This article is an exclusive by Caroline Wilson, senior reporter. A mum has said she's lucky to be alive after developing a rare condition considered an obstetric emergency that claimed the life of her unborn baby. Laura and Jonathan McLeish are grieving the loss of baby Gabriel, who was delivered on June 17th, eight months into the pregnancy and hours after the couple were given the devastating news that he had died in the womb. The couple were told the infant may have passed away only a couple of days before Laura went into labour, when she had noticed a change in his movements. Doctors discovered she had been suffering from acute fatty liver disease, EFLD, which occurs in about 1 in 20,000 pregnancies, usually in the third trimester, and is more common in first pregnancies, male babies and twins. A consultant at the Royal Alexander Hospital, RAH, 
and Paisley told the couple that 15 to 20 years ago, both mother and baby would have been unlikely to survive. It is so rare, she was told, that it is not in the tick list of conditions that obstetricians and midwives generally look for. Often symptoms of AFLD are non-specific and can be mistaken for another condition, making early diagnosis difficult. They include nausea and vomiting, abdominal pain and indigestion, excessive tiredness and jaundice. Laura, 31, who also has a one-year-old son, Jude, said, Through both my pregnancies, I had a lot of morning sickness and it dragged on. The week Gabriel was born, I was quite sick with a lot of heartburn and indigestion, and then it started to get really uncomfortable. I phoned the doctor and they prescribed me some medication to try and deal with the heartburn, but I wasn't getting any relief. Three years later, I realised the cramps were feeling more I was feeling were contractions so went up to the hospital around 1.30am in the morning then labour picked up and really quickly after that I was getting sicker and sicker when I went into the hospital my mum wasn't allowed in because of Covid so I was on my own when they told me his heart had stopped beating I was in triage and a few people have had a look but I kind of knew I had a chat with the midwife and she thought he passed away late on the Tuesday because I felt a difference. He wasn't kicking and I could feel him swishing around. I thought he had turned his head down for delivery but they said this, this is what happens when they pass away. You'll feel him floating around but I didn't realise he had gone. Then they allowed my husband to come. Gabriel was born at quarter past five. Laura says she can barely remember the next few hours as her condition deteriorated and her liver and kidneys started to fail. At one point it was thought she might require transplant surgery. The condition is thought to be caused by the cell's powerhouse, the mitochondria, not breaking down fatty acids into smaller molecules that help the body process proteins, carbohydrates and lipids, fat. These fatty acids then accumulate in tissues, clogging the mother's liver and interfere with her normal liver function. The liver is especially important during pregnancy for mothering a baby because a healthy liver removes toxins and other harmful substances from the body. The condition was previously thought to be universally fatal but aggressive treatment by stabilising the mother with intravenous fluids and blood products in anticipation of early delivery has improved prognosis. Laura said, Only one midwife had ever seen it before at the hospital so my care was directed by specialists in Edinburgh. It was like even in some sort of fog. My memory is very patchy. The consultant said that around 15 to 20 years ago I would have been a goner. There was talk of dialysis and organ transplants if they weren't able to stabilise me. As things are, I was able to return to normal, so I'm very lucky. Laura's last scan was on May the 22nd when the pregnancy was said to be progressing well. She said, he was absolutely perfect. I'm sad now that Johnny wasn't allowed in due to COVID restrictions. The couple, who live in Bishopton in Renfrewshire, are still waiting for the results of Gabriel's post-mortem, which should provide some, some answers about his death and the risk of any future pregnancies. They were able to have a funeral service last week, which Laura says provided some comfort, and have raised more than £7,000 for the baby loss charity Simba, Simpsons Memory Box Appeal create a second family room at the RAH. All families are given a memory box to safeguard precious items including footprint pictures and toys. Laura said, 
My memory is very patchy and that's why the memory box has been so helpful. Even just having the footprints in the clay is something he touched and we can remember how perfect his little hands and feet were. I don't remember a lot of that. It's massively important for every hospital to have this family room because it's a strange type of grief. You're not grieving what could have been. You haven't had a chance to make memories. My husband has an older daughter, Holly, who's eight, so is old enough to know that something bad has happened. So to have all these things show her, to show her when she's older, to allow her to accept her brother as her brother, it's going to be so important later down the track. I was able to do the eulogy at Gabriel's funeral, which I really wanted to do for him. Our wee boy Jude has been a ray of sunshine, so we would have to keep going for him. He makes us laugh every day. I don't know what we would do without him. When Gabriel was delivered, he was not long dead, so he did just look like a sleeping baby in the pictures. He looks peaceful. Jonathan, 32, who works for a technology firm, said the couple has never known pain like it. He added, the fact that Simba had an ongoing project to find another family room at the REH just seemed perfect as it was a way of thanking them while also recognising the staff who dealt with us and with compassion and dignity throughout the whole experience. Gillian Welsh, Events and Partnership Officer for Simba said, Baby loss is something that our society has become a lot better at talking about, but it's still not talked about openly. I just want to thank Jonathan and Laura for their incredible contribution. Gabriel's memory will live on in this new room that will help so many other families sadly going through the same thing. And to make a donation, you can go to the Just Just Giving page www.justgiving.com slash fundraising slash Gabriel W. McLeish And that article was an exclusive by Caroline Wilson. From the Glasgow Times, date Monday the 3rd of August 2020, from the news section. Inside the new COVID-safe mecha bingo at Parkhead, ahead of anticipated reopening. And this article is an exclusive by Hamish Morrison. Bingo is ready to get back, but with nothing even close to a full house. The mecha bingo in Parkhead has spent months and not an insignificant amount of cash setting the place up to be compliant with new social, new social distancing measures. Now all they need is a date for reopening. Nicola Sturgeon has given them an indicative date, August 24th, but this is reliant on a continual fall in the number of coronavirus cases. Paul McGunchy, the manager of the much-loved East End Bingo Hall, said he was happy with the First Minister's announcement. I'm delighted that Nicola has given us a date. It's given us something to work towards, said Paul as he showed the Glasgow Times around the new COVID-safe bingo hall. We were in a bit of a foggy area where we didn't know what we when it was going to be. It would have been great if it had been in a week's time because we're so advanced, but we're very excited to get back. Paul gave a tour of the hall on the, first, on the day the First Minister gave indicative dates for reopening. Customers will now be guided around by floor markers and they're instructed to follow a one-way system around the building. Tables will be spaced out with a number reserved for household groups at one end of the hall. Players will also be offered face masks on arrival and a hand sanitising stations are in place throughout the hall. There is a queuing system in place at the bar to ensure people are at a safe distance while ordering drinks.
Paul says much of this will rely on the common sense of customers, but he's confident people will follow the new rules. Paul says he's been inundated with calls from local bingo fans asking when the hall will reopen. He added, The response has been incredible. Gaswegians are notoriously the biggest bingo lovers in the whole of the UK. The Forge operated a food kitchen for two or three months during the lockdown and we were phoning elderly people as well and they were just excited to be back. I've had two emails already today. We will start phoning people to tell them when it's time to come back. The reunion, whenever it may come, is likely to be an emotional one for Paul's customers. Many are elderly and some have been shielding throughout the lockdown. He said, I think it will be a joyous occasion seeing everybody be back in here. I've been in here for three months, seeing the place empty. Bingo halls are places that should be filled with people laughing and having a good time. They're social hubs, we'll look after each other. It'll be great to see them all back. It comes after Nicola Sturgeon announced on Thursday the indicative reopening date of August 24th for bingo halls in Scotland. She told Parliament, I'm acutely aware, as I stand here right now, that in a statement like this, in which there's a lot of ground to cover, I inevitably make make many five-second references that have profound implications for businesses and livelihoods. Please believe me when I say that I fully recognise the impact of the decisions we are taking. I know how difficult the situation is for sectors and activities that are facing a long wait before they can resume. We do not take any such decisions lightly, but at present, we are not confident that we can restart all those activities safely within a shorter timescale. Doing so could risk a resurgence in the virus and undermine our ability to get children back to school. Mel's Barron, Chief Executive Officer of the Bingo Association, urged the government not to allow the date to slip further back and warned that clubs may not financially survive into August. In a statement before the Thursday's announcement, he said, We understand and support the Scottish Government's cautious approach in coming out of lockdown. However, bingo clubs across the country have worked extremely hard to make our premises COVID-19 secure, with PPE, increased hygiene and rigorous social distancing measures all in place. We're confident that we can reopen safely. It just doesn't make sense that a pub or restaurant could hold a bingo-themed event and call out numbers, but local clubs that have been made far more COVID-19 secure can't welcome the regulars back for a game of bingo. If the Scottish Government decides to extend their closure, bingo clubs across the country are facing having to close for good. And that article is an exclusive by Hamish Morrison. Recorded from the Times, 4th of August 2020. RFU's cost-cutting acts to remove more than 100 roles from community game. Alex Lowe. The RFU has inflicted savage cuts on the grassroots games in England, with every community coach and rugby development officer role to be made redundant as part of the governing body's urgent cost-cutting drive. Staff were informed in a video call on Monday that employees in the department responsible for growing rugby and keeping grassroots participation levels up would be cut from 234 to 130. The RFU is facing lost revenue of up to £107 million over the next 12 months. Bill Sweeney, the chief executive, predicted the economic impact of coronavirus and the lockdown would be felt at Twickenham for five years. Given the scale of the crisis, the RFU had to assess its key priorities and concluded that rugby development was discretionary and not a core function of the organisation, beyond helping clubs by supporting volunteers, coaches and referees. The whole department has been remodelled, with England to be divided up 
into four development regions rather than six. 81 new roles are being created, including 44 in coach and club development that will be advertised from Wednesday. However, the net result is that 104 people who make a hands-on impact at grassroots level will lose their jobs. There are serious concerns at grassroots level that these cuts will have a devastating effect on participation numbers. It's another slap in the face for the community game. Rugby participation is going to be hit, a source said. The RFU's key metric is increasing participation. It was under pressure before, it could collapse now. One community coach who has been made redundant said the writing has been on the wall for a few weeks. The financial picture is disastrous. For me, rugby won't happen in any form that we recognise as the full game in this calendar year. I think there is an existential threat to the whole game at this point. In the longer term, you will have fewer community coaches working across a wider area as a result of these cuts. We'll have less people out there in a direct role helping to grow the game. The RFU is making cuts across the organisation. Eddie Jones's England setup is expected to lose 12% of staff, while the head coach and Twickenham executives have all taken 25% pay reductions. Initial projections of 139 redundancies have risen to 169, around a third of employees following the RFU's decision not to renew central contracts for England seven players. The RFU is waiting to discover whether it will receive Sivens funding from UK Sport ahead of next year's Olympic Games. The England women's programme is also under review a year out from the World Cup in New Zealand, with suggestions the team could base themselves at Twickenham in future rather than at Bisham Abbey as a way of saving money. However, the community game will once again bear the heaviest burden, with 61% of total redundancies as it did during the previous round of job cuts two years ago. On that occasion, the savings were required because the RFU had signed long-term deals that it could no longer afford, while costs of the new East Stand hospitality area had spiralled. There will be substantial savings to be made in the professional rugby department because two of the RFU's biggest fixed costs will now come down. The England men's pay deal, which was worth up to £25,000 per game per man, has expired and will drop significantly. The second four years of its partnership with Premiership Rugby will be tied to RFU revenue and clubs expect central funding to drop by 60%. Nevertheless, the RFU will be aware that it faces criticism from the grassroots game for once again targeting community rugby. The balance of investment between professional and grassroots rugby has widened to 65-35 in the most recent financial report. It is understood that RFU has not done any modelling of the potential impact on participation of these cuts given there are so many different circumstances in play at present. One source suggested the cuts would have happened anyway, but it has been sped up by the pandemic. It is understood there was no specific plan, although the RFU was moving towards online education, with 55% of clubs having taken part in online webinars during lockdown. Katrina Stewart, are the tears and fears of eating out really worth it for the £10 temptation? An article by Katrina Stewart, columnist and reporter, published in the Glasgow Times of Tuesday the 4th of August 2020. It's likely a contradiction in political aims, but my diet is out of the window for August. 
It might have been better planning for the UK government to offer discounted dinners and then launch its anti-obesity strategy in the first week of September. Certainly, I was feeling very inspired to boost my fitness levels until I realised I could get £10 off my tea three nights a week. There really is a good bit of cognitive dissonance around these two positions. We know that the biggest driver of obesity is poverty. For those of us fortunate enough to still have some disposable income, we might dine out in fancy places and make healthier choices. But for those who don't have cash to spare, the options are fast food chains of the type we're being encouraged to forego until we can demonstrate we understand the concept of everything in moderation. And with that concept in mind, I wouldn't, of course, eat in a restaurant three times a week for a month. So would once a week really do much harm? Pre-lockdown, I would eat in restaurants an average of twice a week and expected that an enforced spell of cooking from scratch every meal would make a real change to my waistline. No such luck. Since March, we have been compelled to stay in, and now, lockdown easing, we are being coaxed to come back out again. The thrifty among us love a bargain, and this new scheme is tempting in its immediacy. For many of us, government initiatives can feel a bit arbitrary. What have politicians ever done for us? But when £10 is deducted off your bill at the point of sale, well, there's your answer. Will the Eat Out to Help Out scheme be enough, though, to boost the limping hospitality industry? Yesterday was the first day of the initiative and there were already concerns expressed from businesses that the discount is complicated to apply and that weekend sales will be affected. With the latter of those two, surely it's a good thing for the safety of customers and staff that bookings are spread out over the week rather than have large clusters at the weekend. Because the issue is public confidence. Some will absolutely leap at the chance to go out and about again. Others will be anxiously avoiding anywhere with crowds. Just as Eat Out to Help Out launched, Nicola Sturgeon was quoted at the Daily Scottish Government briefing saying that the sight of crowds gathering in pubs made me want to cry looking at them. Many of us will be able to empathise with that feeling. In such a short space of time we've been conditioned to be nervous of other people and it can be seriously disquieting to see groups of strangers huddled together. A restaurant and a pub environment are very different. But there are still people drinking alcohol, letting their guard down and relaxing. We're placing a great deal of trust in staff, but also in each other to do the right thing and keep everyone safe. That's the thing with restaurants. They're as much about the experience as they are about the food. And the experience now has fundamentally changed. One of the purposes of dining out is to relax and switch off which is hard to do when you're worried about safety standards and the implications of a potential track-and-trace phone call in a few days' time. 
As a related aside, I also wonder how the lingering nervousness around using public transport fits with dining out and have drinks with dinner. Unless you're within walking distance of restaurants taking part in Eat Out to Help Out, then public transport, taxis or driving are the options. If more people are driving, then fewer are drinking. Another cut to hospitality and nighttime economy incomes. I've been out to eat three times since lockdown eased and only on one of those occasions was I asked for my contact details. At one of the negligent venues, I asked the waitress if she would like my number, only to be met with the type of stare I imagine is usually reserved for men going through midlife crises. It's amazing how putting on some smart clothes and makeup after four months of leggings and a bare face can make you forget a pandemic. The first two meals were at the stage of only being allowed to eat outdoors, but last week's big event was dinner at the newly opened Mama San in Glasgow. It was a night of thrilling firsts. First time on public transport, first time in a taxi, and first time sitting in a restaurant since the crisis began. It's amazing also how a pre-dinner cocktail can make you forget a pandemic. A good thing. The point of dining out is to relax, and a bad thing given all the new bits to navigate. It's strange having staff, even in masks, come so close to serve the food when the rest of life is spent keeping strangers at a strict two-metre distance. But I was surprised at how quickly my nerves dissolved and how good for the soul it was to be socialising, speaking to interesting people and enjoying amazing food. Is anxiety misplaced? The only way is to try it and see. For some, the risks involved in dining out won't be enough to tempt them. For others, it's a vital bit of normalcy restored and an even more vital boost to the economy. A tenner certainly won't be enough to offset the fears of the former group, but the rest of us can have second helpings to make up for it. Our columns are a platform for writers to express their opinions. They do not necessarily represent the views of the Herald. Article from the Glasgow Times, Tuesday the 4th of August 2020, Lifestyle. Glasgow's Black Sheep Bistro owner on her fight for survival by Anne Fotheringham, Senior Features Writer. A popular Mary Hill restaurant is hoping its 10th birthday celebrations will go ahead in September as it battles to survive after lockdown. Angela Loftus, co-owner and chef at the Black Sheep Bistro on Clarendon Street, is hoping against hope her business will make it to the milestone anniversary. When lockdown was announced, we had already taken the decision to close as a sit-in diner because of what was happening, and we were worried about staff and customer safety, she explained. Our last day was Mother's Day, which we did as takeaway only. At that point, we just did not know enough about COVID-19, and to be honest, I could not believe what was happening. Angela added, In those first few days, we sat glued to the news, 
thinking we might be closed for two or three weeks. As things got worse, we began to think, this is it, we're finished. The Glasgow Times is backing the Glasgow Loves Local Business campaign, giving city firms and restaurants who are struggling in the aftermath of the pandemic a chance to tell our readers why they should support them. You can submit a business profile and your details for a free business listing to us. Angela runs the restaurant, which regularly receives rave reviews for its hearty home-cooked food, with her partner Dave Grogan and daughters Claire and Emma. As the initial shock subsided, Angela and her team rallied, deciding to reopen to provide a takeaway-only service. Seven weeks closed and I felt I was on some weird long holiday, she said. We had to get back to work as our landlord needed the rent paid and there was nothing left in the bank. I have to make this work. Angela has signed up to the government's Eat Out to Help Out scheme, which offers a 50% discount worth up to £10 per head for customers who dine out on Mondays, Tuesdays and Wednesdays in August. We want to survive until our 10th birthday next month, and we hope taking part in this scheme will go some way to getting us there, she said. It sounds like a good deal for diners, as they can use it as many times as they want, and hopefully it will encourage people to come out and eat. I know people still feel very wary, but our place, like many others, are fighting for survival. Angela has been overwhelmed by the support from her local community. The takeaway has been hugely successful, and local people have been amazing, she said. We are feeling a lot of love and support from our customers. We are now open to dine in, and we will still do takeaway to try and support the business, as our seating capacity has been reduced by 50% to allow us to comply with social distancing. Angela added, I really hope the hospitality industry can recover. It breaks my heart when I hear of places like the Wheelochen and Ingram Wind closing down, because I know what goes into building up a business in this industry, and it is not easy. Thomas Kerr, I am backing Douglas Ross to be Scott's Tory leader. An article by Thomas Kerr columnist published in the Glasgow Times of Tuesday the 4th of August 2020. Last week's resignation of my party leader Jackson Carlaw MSP came as a blow to myself and those who championed his vision of blue-collar conservatism that he made the centrepiece of his leadership campaign only six months ago. As someone from a working-class background, I passionately believe that the future of the Conservative Party lies in those values of empowering communities like mine, equipping everyone, regardless of where they came from or how they were brought up, with the skills to succeed and meet their aspirations. I don't just want to talk about social mobility. I want for every child in the east end of Glasgow to experience it. John Major once said, What does the Conservative Party offer a working-class kid from Brixton? And of course we all know the answer is that they made him Prime Minister. 
Well, for me, the Scottish Conservatives have offered a working-class kid from Shettleston the opportunity to become a council group leader and the chance to effect real change in my own community. Jackson Carlaw was an integral part of my formative years within the party and for that I will always be grateful. Leadership of any organisation comes with its opportunities as well as wide-ranging challenges. During these past few months, it has often been difficult to toe the fine line between robust scrutiny of public policy, something I believe is a fundamental tenet of our democracy and which I will never shy away from, and accusations of politicisation and prioritising the interests of one party over the country. Jackson is not the only leader who has faced this challenge, but it speaks to his character that he was able to put his own personal ambitions aside in the face of what he believes to be the greater interest of both the Scottish Conservative Party and our UK. I'd like to see a new leader commit to embracing the values of blue-collar conservatism. I want a leader ready and able to expose the empty spin that the SNP used to shroud their failures in government. A leader who comprehensively rejects the narrative of division that forms the nationalist's core strategy and offers a refreshed vision on what Scotland's place in the UK means for young people today. This leader shouldn't be afraid to boast about the UK's record in helping some of the most vulnerable people in the world through our overseas aid budget. This leader should shout from the rooftops that the UK is a world leader in wind power and other green technologies. This leader should bring home to the people of Scotland in a real and tangible way the benefits of a devolved system of government that gives us the best of both worlds, allowing us to take decisions on matters which solely affect us, while also being part of a wider social, cultural and economic union of peoples that protects jobs, stimulates arts and culture and keeps us safe from those that would do us harm. The Scottish National Party's singular aim is to destroy devolution and the Labour and Lib Dem parties have abandoned the battlefield. It will be up to the new leader of the Scottish Conservative and Unionist Party to stop them. For me, this leader is Douglas Ross, MP. Since seeing off Angus Robertson and holding his Murray seat last year, he has been a consistent thorn in the side of the Nationalist cohort at Westminster. He's a dedicated, hard-working and principled public servant for whom his constituents always come first. I have no doubt that he's up to the challenge we face and look forward to working with him over the coming weeks and months as we prepare for the electoral challenges on the horizon. Article from Glasgow Times, Tuesday, 4th of August, 2020. Lifestyle. When Glasgow issued its own passports, by Anne Fotheringham, Senior Features Writer. What kind of passport would you like in an ideal world? Blue or Burgundy? Scottish or British? Or Glaswegian? 
The idea is not that far-fetched. Before the First World War, Glasgow did have the power to issue its own passports. Nevis Tunnicliffe, archivist with Glasgow City Archives based at the Mitchell Library, explains, Prior to World War I, there was no requirement for anyone travelling abroad to have a passport. The vast majority travelling overseas had no formal documentation. It was mainly merchants or diplomats who requested passports, and Glasgow had powers to issue them. We hold registers of passports issued by the city between 1857 to 1914, recording names and occupations, as well as family members accompanying the passport holder, home address and destination. Glasgow passport holders included merchant Johann Hermann Becker, a naturalised British subject on his way to Russia, and Thomas Mitchell, his wife and three infant daughters, plus their two servants, Jane Ed Lee and Janet Edgar, who went to France. While libraries remain closed, as part of hashtag Glasgow Life Goes On, Neris and her colleagues, Michael Gallagher, Lindsay Green, senior archivist Irene O'Brien and Barbara Nielsen, are running Ask the Archivists, which gives people the chance to ask questions about the city collections. More details are available on the Glasgow City Archives Facebook page. Migration records held by Glasgow City Archives include fantastic privately donated photographs of the Italian Gizzi and Crolla families who ran ice cream and cafe businesses in Glasgow, including the Clyde Cafe. Other sources about the family may be found in valuation rolls and post office directories, explains Neris. We'd love to hear anyone's memories of their cafes or ice cream carts. The picture shows members of the Kroller family collecting blocks of ice from the factory of ice merchants R. White in Laird Place in Bridgeton during the 1930s. The Krollers ran the premier cafe in Bridgeton's Main Street. Family members of all generations contributed to the business, says Neris. This meant long antisocial hours and only limited contact with people from out with the Italian community. Italian was spoken in the home, where the family dined together and Italian dishes were preferred. Some readers may remember the dairy boat or the scotch boat. These were the Burns and Laird line ships, such as the Laird's Loch, which journeyed between Glasgow and Derry, explains Neris. Holidaymakers and migrants extensively use the service, but unfortunately there are no passenger records. We do have some Burns and Laird ship logs recording voyages, though, and some crew members' details. The Laird's Loch operated from 1944 until 1966. Recorded from the Times, 5th of August 2020. Arsenal to axe 55 jobs in cost-cutting measures to offset lost income during coronavirus pandemic. Matt Lawton Arsenal have become the first Premier League club to announce major job losses because of the coronavirus pandemic after notifying 55 members of staff that they would be made redundant. The club hope that the move will save many millions of pounds and is part of cost-cutting measures to offset the loss of match day and commercial income, as well as the rebate that will need to be paid to the broadcasters by the Premier League because football is being played behind closed doors. The decision is sure to meet some cynicism given that Mikel 
Arteta's side have responded to their victory in last weekend's FA Cup final by trying to secure the services of Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang on a new £300,000 a week deal and are looking to recruit William from Chelsea. New deals have already been agreed for other players, the centre-back David Luiz among them. The club has also been trying to sign Philippe Coutinho on loan from Barcelona and Thomas Partey, the Atletico Madrid midfielder. In an earlier round of cuts, Arsenal trimmed the number of scouts, including those working overseas, but the latest decisions will target positions that have been impacted by the virus. The majority of the cuts are expected to be in the hospitality, events, commercial and administration departments. Arsenal's wage bill was £234 million in their latest accounts, about 80% of which is thought to be spent on wages for players and coaching staff. Arsenal already had plans to cut their player wage bill due to a failure to qualify for the Champions League in recent seasons, but they have moved to assure supporters it will continue to invest in the team next season. The club earned about £96 million from their match day income, a quarter of their total revenue of £395 million in the 2018-2019 season. It has been difficult for the club to outline the extent of the financial black hole they will be faced going forward, given it is not known when and how many fans will be allowed to return to stadiums. Arsenal can at least point to the fact that the majority of their players responded to the pandemic by agreeing to a 12.5% pay cut. Arsenal's executive team also agreed to waive more than a third of their salaries over a period of 12 months. But football finance expert Kieran Maguire highlighted the potential savings of such job losses compared to the overall playing wage bill. In a social media post, Maguire said, Arsenal announces 55 redundancies, which an average salary of, say, £35,000, will save just under £2 million from their wage bill, which was £232 million last season. Arsenal earned £3.6 million for winning the FA Cup and qualified for Europa League next season, worth up to £40 million. Insiders, however, do point to the staff numbers at the Emirates Stadium and the need for streamlining at a club that relies so heavily on matchday revenue. In their most recent accounts, it was stated that Arsenal have 707 staff, with only 73 of those players. When Tottenham Hotspur invited criticism for announcing they would be placing staff on furlough leave during the height of the COVID-19 crisis, it was revealed that they had 550 non-playing staff. Stan Crokin, the Arsenal owner, has an estimated wealth of £8.3 billion, while his wife Anne Walton Kronke is an heir to the Walmart fortune. In April, Walmart announced it would be creating 150,000 jobs across its business. Last week, however, the company said it would be cutting corporate jobs as part of a restructuring process. Perhaps, perhaps significant was the fact that the statement posted on Arsenal's website this afternoon was signed by both Raul Sanlehi, the club's head of football, and Vina Venkatesham, the managing director. That would suggest some football jobs are also at risk, even if the club was still advertising today for a new first-team physiotherapist and a head of the women's academy. Arsenal boasts 87 training staff, 123 grand staff and 424 administration staff, according to their most recent accounts. The club finished 8th in the Premier League and qualified for the Europa League by beating Chelsea in the FA Cup final on Saturday. While that will improve Arsenal's financial footing, 
It has not proven enough to prevent the redundancies and the club have already restructured their stadium loan this summer. They stated that their traditional revenue streams had all been hit severely with the club facing one of the most challenging periods in their history. In a statement, Sanlehi and Venkatesham said that television revenue, which totaled £180 million in the 2018-2019 season, will be affected. Premier League clubs agreed to refund about £340 million to broadcasters because matches are not taking place as expected, half of which had been has been deferred until 2021-2022. In line with other football clubs and many other businesses operating in the sport, leisure and entertainment arena, we have been impacted directly by COVID-19, Sanlehi and Venkatesham said. Our main sources of income have all reduced significantly. Revenue from broadcasters, match day and commercial activities have all been hit severely and these impacts will continue into at least the forthcoming 2020-2021 season. Over recent years, we've consistently invested in additional staff to take the club forward, but with the expected reduction of income in mind, it is now clear that we must reduce our costs further to ensure we're operating in a sustainable and responsible way and to enable us to continue to invest in the team. From the Glasgow Times, Wednesday the 5th of August 2020, from the news section, Coronavirus Live, cause for alarm as Scotland's COVID-19 hospital admissions rise, by Jack Aitchison. 9.05am, Scottish factory could produce 60 million doses of vaccine. A factory in West Lothian is expanding as part of a deal to secure 60 million doses of a coronavirus vaccine candidate developed by the French firm Valneva. The UK government and the drugs firm are investing in the Livingston plant with 75 new jobs expected to be created. The government has struck a deal for early access to Valneva's promising vaccine candidate. If clinical trials are successful, the site could provide up to 100 million doses of the vaccine across the UK and internationally. Business Secretary Alex Shermer will visit the factory on Wednesday to hear about plans to scale up production. Valneva's vaccine, which is called VLA-2001, is one of the four potential vaccines which the UK government has secured the rights for. Mr Sharma said, I'm incredibly grateful to our highly skilled scientists and technicians in Livingston who are supporting the global effort to research develop and manufacture a safe and effective coronavirus vaccine. The multi-million pound upfront investment we have agreed with Valneva today means that their vaccine can be manufactured in quantity right here in Scotland. If clinical trials are successful, millions of people in priority groups across the UK will be protected by their life-saving vaccine. Speaking in the BBC's Good Morning Scotland radio programme ahead of his visit, Mr Sharma said the French company hoped to secure regularity approval for its vaccine in the second half of next year. Mr Sharma said, We are looking at a whole range of ways we can support and bring forward a successful vaccine. In addition to that, we are also investing in manufacturing in the UK and supporting the international effort. Scottish Secretary Alistair Jack said, We are doing everything possible to keep the people in all parts of the UK safe as we tackle the coronavirus pandemic. The UK government is purchasing millions of doses of coronavirus vaccine for distribution across all parts of the UK. 
A safe and effective vaccine is vital to the long-term protection against the virus we need. I'm particularly pleased that Scotland's world-class research sector is playing such an important role in developing a much-needed vaccine. Valneva said the final supply agreement would be concluded in the coming weeks. Chief Financial Officer David Lawrence said, We are delighted to receive initial funding from the UK Government to support the expansion of our COVID-19 vaccine manufacturing facilities. We are thrilled that the Secretary of State has made the time to travel to Livingston and to visit our site. It's a real sign of the Government's commitment. Eight fifty-three am Cause for alarm as hospital admissions rise. Nicola Sturgeon warned that coronavirus is still a real threat, as figures revealed the first consistent COVID-related increase in hospital admissions for months. The First Minister said officials were looking very carefully at what appears to be a rise in cases of the infection in recent weeks, as the number of people being treated in hospital with the virus climbed by 15 since Friday. Public health expert Professor Linda Bald said there was now some cause for concern. If it was just new cases, then it would be far less cause for alarm, she said, she added. Ms Sturgeon confirmed yesterday that the number of people being treated for COVID in the hospital has risen by 5 to 270. That is up from 255 on Friday, following an increase of 5 admissions on Saturday and a further 5 on Sunday. All patients have tested positive for the virus. It's the first time since April that an increase in admissions has been sustained over three or four consecutive days, albeit with a much smaller number than during the peak of the outbreak, when hundreds of patients were being admitted to the hospital every day. The increase in admissions also comes after four weeks of fairly steady rises in new cases. Virus incidents bottomed out during the weekend on July the 8th, when only 50 new cases were detected. In the past week, 159 people have tested positive. The highest since early June. Ms Sturgeon said the figure should be a warning to pay attention to the risk of transmission, which she said had not gone away. We know that we're possibly seeing a bit of an uptick in cases, said the First Minister. Most of those at the moment, we think, are associated with clusters and outbreaks, not necessarily like an uptick in border community transmission. But we're looking at that very, very carefully. So, at the moment, all of the data leads me back to the same point. This virus is still a real threat, and it's still out there. She added, We shouldn't get carried away at the moment and overstate things, but equally, the data in Scotland and across the UK, and some of what's happening worldwide, if we're not hearing these warnings, then we're not paying attention. We've got to pay attention to the fine changes in all of this, so we can try to act before it gets out of control. On Friday, Ms Sturgeon said that around half of the new COVID cases detected in Scotland last week were among Scots aged 20 to 39, leading National Clinical Director Professor Jason Leach to say that young people might have taken their foot off the brake just a little too early. Younger people are less likely to become unwell or even to develop symptoms from catching the virus but can still spread it to people who are more at risk. In Spain, Prior to May 11th, those aged 15 to 29 accounted for just 5% of the country's COVID cases. Since May 11th, they have accounted for more than 20%. Professor Ball, the Bruce and John Usher Professor of Public Health at Edinburgh University's Usher Institute, said, 
especially apparent from other countries, that most of the cases post-lockdown have come from younger people who are moving around more, but less likely to have symptoms of becoming very unwell. However, they will pass on to others, and some of them may of course become unwell. So what we, so we'd expect to see when cases go up, even in the small numbers we're seeing now, that that is going to translate into some hospital admissions. So I think there is some cause for concern. If it was just new cases, then it would be far less of a cause for alarm. But if more people are going to the hospital, hopefully what we, won't, what we won't see is more of them going into ICU. Because if we start that creep up, even in small numbers, then we're going to see some deaths again. And those articles are by Jack Aitchison. Recorded from the Times, 5th of August 2020. Mad scientist Bryson DeChambeau hoping brains plus extra brawn add up to first major. Rick Broadbent. Here comes Bryson DeChambeau. You can't miss him really. He is a golfer who added £45 in nine months to become golf's biggest hitter since when he has been busy with a rules run-in about dangerous ants and saying he intends to live until he is 130. Now the mad scientist faces the litmus test. DeChambeau, 26, from Modesto in California, is the world number seven and so no mean player. But he has never threatened a major. I don't feel there is a better time, he said, as he looked to tomorrow's first round of the US PGA Championship in San Francisco. Having devoted himself to muscle activation techniques, chomped his way through 3,500 calories a day and quaffed an ocean of protein shakes, DeChambeau is basking in the adulation of being 30 yards longer off the tee than last year. He now averages 321 yards, but upped that to 423 on one par 4 at the Memorial Tournament last month. He splits opinion as well as the f- as fairways. Eddie Pepperell, the British player, once dubbed him the unaffected single-minded twit for his painfully slow play. Brooks Kopka, the defending US PGA champion, mocked him last week after he cited the dangerous animal's condition that means players can take relief if under threat of serious injury from poisonous snakes, bears and fire ants. DeChambeau fatuously claimed there were ants swarming over his ball, which also happened to have a bad lie. When Kopka later found himself in the same position, he joked, there's an ant. Now DeChambeau says the thickest rough players have seen since the restart will not make him more cautious. This course suits a bomber, he said after a look at Harding Park. I'd say it's pretty straightforward to be honest, not really too much to it. As the rough stands right now, the risk is definitely worth the reward. If you hit it into the rough, you can still hit it out to the front edge of the green. DeChambeau is undoubtedly attracting a lot of interest, which can only be a good thing for golf. The sport is always more in love with the past than the future, with a drowsy pace of change, so radical thinking invites scepticism. However, there is a method in what sees as his madness. His work with Greg Roskopf from MAT was originally based around strengthening his softer muscles. DeChambeau's left trunk was his weak spot. He now trains every day. His diet is based on a 2 to 1 protein carbohydrate ratio. He says he he tries to attain a parasympathetic sleep state so he can play without emotion. 
and if it sounds vaguely sci-fi when he starts talking about monitoring air pressure, surface firmness and ball spin before relaxing with his Neuropeak Pro training unit to monitor brainwaves, it beats golfers talking about nine irons. Curiously, DeChambeau's go-to textbook is not a New Age fair, but an arcane text called The Golfing Machine that came out in 1969. Homer Kelly's tome never sold well, but claimed the golf swing could be reduced to geometry and physics. DeChambeau took this on board, and so he says there are 144 variations of 24 components of the 12 sections of the swing. Choose your weapons. The one plane swing and the single length irons were born of this. The swing is now so fast and violent that DeChambeau looks like he's either mugging the air or beset by fire ants, but he is more than that. Strokes gained is the stat that compares a golfer with the PGA Tour field, and he is now sixth in putting as well as first off the tee. He admits that his wedge play needs to improve, but he was in the top ten at the first four post-lockdown tournaments, culminating in his win at the Rocket Mortgage Classic. I've shown people that there's another way to do it, DeChambro said, after that success. If he upgrades that on Sunday, it will be protein shakes all round. From the Glasgow Times, date Wednesday the 5th of August 2020, from the news section, Poorer pupils thrown under the bus by SQ results, article by Katrina Stewart, Scotland's exams body is expected to be flooded with appeals after it admitted downgrading nearly a quarter of results this year. There were fears yesterday that the system developed by the Scottish Qualifications Authority, SQA, to replace exams cancelled due to the COVID-19 crisis have disproportionately affected children from disadvantaged backgrounds. SQA figures show a difference of 6.9% in estimated grades and grades awarded for pupils from the most well-off homes but that number was 15.2% for those from the most deprived backgrounds. More than a quarter, 26.2% of grades were changed in the moderation by the SQA, a total of 133,000, while 377,000 entries were accepted unchanged. The examples criteria for moderation included the historic performance of, of schools and grades were adjusted where the centre's estimates were outside the constraint range for that course, according to the SQA Chief Examining Officer Fiona Robertson. New schools without previous exam results were unchanged. Education Secretary John Swinney said, This year has been exceptionally challenging, but these robust processes mean we have upheld standards so that all learners can hold their heads up and move on to the next phase in their life, whether that be further study, employment or training. All exam systems rely on an essential progress known as moderation to uphold standards. This ensures an A-grade is the same as in every part of the country, making the system fair for everyone and across all years. Pupils took to Twitter yesterday to share their disappointment at receiving lower than expected results. Glasgow broadcaster Anna Satlam wrote that her younger brother was among pupils who had been thrown under the bus. She wrote, Got an absolutely defeated baby brother over here who did well in his prelims, only to be completely shafted by the SQA, who seemed to be rounding down at least two bands across the board in what looks like a dedicated attempt to throw the working class kids under the bus. Scottish Labour's education spokesman Ian Gray said the scoring system was marking the school, not the pupil. He said, The SQA have done this on the basis of each school's best performance, marking the school, not the pupil, 
and baking in the attainment gap. They were told that this would be grossly unfair, and it is. The SQA have also treated teachers' professional judgement with contempt. The SQA will now be deluged with appeals. I hope they're ready to deal with them properly. This year, the fee for appeals has been dropped by the exams body in an attempt to create a fairer playing field for disadvantaged pupils. The SQA has also pledged to process all appeals submitted by August 14th in time for UCAS to confirm final university places in September. Overall, results were up across the board, including in Glasgow, where the number of pupils finishing fifth year with one or more higher rose by 3%. For those finishing fifth year with four or more higher, the number is up by 1.3%. Across Scotland, results showed that the national five pass rate was 81.1%, the higher pass rate was 78.9%, and the advanced higher pass rate was 84.9%. In 2019, the National 5 pass rate was 78.2%, the higher pass rate was 74.8% and the advanced higher pass rate was 79.4%. Sweeney said teachers had overestimated people's grades and, without the SQA making adjustments, the number of passes would have been up in 2019 by 10.4% for National 5s, 14% for hires and 13.4% for advanced hires. Councillor Chris Cunningham, City Convener for Education Skills in Early Years, said Today is about celebrating the achievements and attainment of Glasgow's young people. I know in the last few months have been challenging and anxious to say the least and I want to take this opportunity to thank our young people, teachers and school staff who have shown their dedication and strength in the face of adversity. The results being opened in homes across the city today are proof that our young people will continue to raise the bar and improve year on year and this will be welcomed by all these in these unprecedented times. There has been much debate and discussion about the exam contingency plans. This was a robust process in Glasgow and we must never forget that the most important factor is our young people and how we support and nurture them through the current pandemic. Mr Cunningham added, I'm delighted that the results this year are up across all indicators, with more of our young people than ever before achieving qualifications. Our young people and their teachers have worked incredibly hard and they all deserve to bask in the good news today. Schools will be supporting their young people over the next few days and on their return next week if things have not gone to plan. There's always another solution and no wrong path. And that article was by Katriona Stewart. Recorded for The Times, 5th of August 2020. Tennis stars must hire private security to chart their every move at US Open. Stuart Fraser US Open organisers have ordered star players such as Novak Djokovic and Serena Williams to hire security guards as part of a strict protocols to ensure that the biosecure bubble around the Grand Slam tournament is not breached. While there are two designated hotels in Long Island, New York for competitors and their coaching teams, the United States Tennis Association, USTA, has also made available a selection of private homes for those who are willing to pay for the privilege of having their own space during the event from August 31st to September 13th. Players who wish to take up this option have been informed in recent days that they will also have to co- cover the significant costs of contracting a private security service to monitor their movements. In a Big Brother-esque move, tournament officials must be permitted to see the records of entry and exit times. This particular protocol shows the lack of faith in players to respect the bubble. Aware of the recent breaches in basketball and golf, 
Organizers are understood to be extra cautious because of the behaviour surrounding Djokovic's Adria Tour exhibition series in the Balkans earlier this summer, when nine people involved tested positive after a noticeable lack of social distancing. Athletes are required to have 24-hour security, pay for all costs associated with the security, and receive approval in advance by the USTA of the nature and type of security, the US Open Player Fact Sheet reads. The USTA must be provided with access to the external security egress and ingress information for the duration of the time in the private housing. Andy Murray last week called for severe repercussions for anyone who failed to follow the health and safety guidelines and expressed concerns that the bubble could be breached by allowing people to stay in private homes. The 2012 champion will be relieved then that the player fact sheet shows that organisers are taking a a no-nonsense approach. Players have been warned that they will immediately be removed from the draw and fined if they leave the bubble without permission. Any guests, a maximum of three are allowed, who breach the protocols will have their accreditation revoked and be banned from attending next year's tournament. Any player who tests positive will also be withdrawn from the tournament in order to isolate for 10 days. This also applies for 14 days if a player is sharing a room with a member of their entourage who has returned a positive test. While Djokovic is on the US Open entry list, this is by no means confirmation that he will that he will participate. Players can still withdraw at this point and he is one of many from Europe who are eagerly awaiting confirmation of a quarantine exemption when returning after the tournament. The USTA have gone have so far gone no further than saying that they have made positive progress with European authorities on this front. Rafael Nadal is definitely out confirming on Tuesday that he will not appear in New York because of concerns about the present health situation. The world number two from Spain is the first male player not to defend a Grand Slam singles title for reasons other than injury or retirement since Brian Teacher, the 1980 Australian Open champion from the United States, who chose to instead play an exhibition match the following year. The tournament is still big, Nadal said, I'm not arrogant enough to say the tournament is not big because I'm not playing. There will be important players. Of course, it's a tournament under special circumstances, but it is still a Grand Slam, and the winner will feel like the winner of a Grand Slam. Article from Glasgow Times Thursday, 6th of August 2020 Lifestyle Glasgowist Epicures teams up with Kyle Bruich for Spin on Brunch by Paul Trainer, Glasgowist. While the nearby food scene in Finiston and Partick is often in a state of flux with new openings and pop-ups, Hindland is more used to sitting in a state of vaguely bohemian contentment. Epicures has been a focal point for the neighbourhood, so it was big news locally when the brasserie was given a makeover after being bought by Ollie Norman last year. Now we hear they are to enter a new era of brunch and baking, in partnership with Carl Bruch. The two businesses say they had developed plans for a joint venture before lockdown, and rumours of a new Carl Bruch space had been swirling for the past couple of weeks. The three AA Rosettes rated kitchen team from Carl Bruch will now be responsible for the food menu at Epicures, opening with a focus on brunch, supplemented by sandwiches and salads, alongside a dedicated bakery offering cakes, pastries and breads for sit-in meals or takeaway.
In part, this is inspired by the breakfast pastries menu Karl Bruch was offering to pick up from the restaurant during lockdown, which proved popular. Olli Norman, owner of Epicure, said, I've long been a huge fan of Karl Bruch and the exceptional quality of food, drink and service, and I'm really excited about Chris and his team taking over the operation as Epicures. Throughout lockdown, visits to the CB Bakery were a highlight, so to bring the offering to Epicures is a real joy, along with the f taking the food offerings to a whole new level. Chris Charalambus, owner of Karlburg, said, Epicures is a Glasgow institution, and to be offered the chance to put our spin on a neighbourhood brunch spot is very exciting. We'll follow the same ethos as we always have on sourcing artisan producers and treating their product with care and respect. The menu will reflect our passion for creating modern eye-catching and, most importantly, tasty dishes. A bakery is something I've always wanted to open, and seeing how well it was received during lockdown, it makes perfect sense to give it, to give it a permanent home. We're firm believers that every neighbourhood should have a good bakery, so we hope that the new Epicures is the hub of Hindland. Epicures by Kyle Bruch will open on Friday the 14th of August, with bookings live from Monday the 10th of August at 5pm. It's a full oaf offering at Banana Moon. They are, are as comfortable serving you a cheese and beans toasty as they are serving up a Levantine flatbread spinach manakish pizza. Over cocktails or coffee, many strands of life come together at Banana Moon on Great Western Road. It's small, but there's plenty of space and light, quirky designs and art motifs. A mezzanine level will soon be a speakeasy-style upstairs bar area. During the week, Banana Moon is populated by students, families, folk taking a break while walking their dogs, or just me trying to escape the incessant rain. There's outside tables that catch the sun late into the evening, but not today. As I'm munching on a Palestinian meat pastry in a corner table, I'm told the updated menu is made up of different Middle Eastern plates, featuring family recipes, principally from the owner's mum and granny. They have also inspired the Mrs. Falafel food truck, a brand new part of the business. Think fully loaded pitas, wraps, lots of babanagush and lamb koftas. You'll find Mrs. Falafel on Ashley Street in Woodlands. Spiritualist back in mix after lockdown. Back from their lockdown hiatus, and ready to shake things up with a steady supply of colourful cocktails, the Spiritualist has reopened Thursday to Sunday on Miller Street. Their food menu is currently not available, creating more space to spread out tables for those looking for drinks. An online system using your smartphone is responsible for quickly taking track and trace details. You will also access menus on your phone before an order is taken by staff wearing PPE. After that, it's business as usual, with drinks like a mango mojito featuring spiced Bacardi Oak Heart rum, agave nectar, fresh lime juice and mango mixed or stolen kisses, with haku vodka, sugar syrup, fresh grapefruit, mint, cucumber, Mediterranean tonic and fresh flowers. Homemade cocktails may have filled the gap while bars were closed, but you can't beat the real thing. Limited walk-in space available, but booking a place before you visit is recommended.
Special Glasgowist dinner served up. Glasgowist readers are invited to a six-course dining experience at Glasgow, the new fine dining restaurant that opened on Royal Exchange Square last week. The special event menu will be served for one night only on August the 18th. It was devised after a chat I had with head chef Diane Scott that ended with a challenge. Could he design a menu that showcased the best of Scottish produce and introduced what Glasgow is all about? He has put together a seasonal feast that illustrates his refined approach to cooking, displayed the confident attitude to ingredients that you would expect from a chef who has worked with Heston Blumenthal. You also have the option of a drinks pairing menu to complement each course. To join us for a Glasgowist dinner, call 0141 248 2214 or email contact at glasgowrestaurant.co.uk. Frank Macaviti. Our pupils are being used for punchline in results fiasco joke. An article by Frank McAviti published in the Glasgow Times of Thursday the 6th of August 2020. Just imagine the stress and anxiety felt by all of our young people who were waiting to receive their results on Tuesday morning. For many, dreams of going on to university hung in the balance. And imagine the shock, the hurt, the bitter disappointment when tens of thousands opened up their results to find that the mark they received fell wide of what they should have received. Of course, many readers won't have to imagine. Many readers will be in the thick of this unmitigated foul-up. A day that is normally reserved for congratulating our young people and for recognising our advancements and attainment descended into chaos and anger. Teachers felt completely and utterly ignored, their professional judgment ripped up by a spreadsheet. According to the Scottish Government, with whom blame lies entirely, our young people would have done too well this year. According to the Scottish Government, the professional judgment of our teachers, whom we entrust with our children's futures, was simply not credible. The offending formulaic change? If a grade awarded to an individual pupil was significantly higher than the average of their school over the last five years, then they were marked down. 133,000 grades were changed and 92% marked down. But the offensive part, grades of young people in poorer areas were marked down at double the rate of their better-off counterparts. Though it feels like a distant memory, some of us can remember when Nicola Sturgeon stood up in Parliament and invited Scots to judge her on her record in education. It was to be the defining mission, bringing down the attainment gap that continues to beset our young people, the educational inequalities that continue to scar would be wiped away by this administration. And yet, when it matters most, 
when the future of tens of thousands of our young people is almost literally on the line, where is this great defining mission to be found? Instead of building a system to address these inequalities, they chose, despite repeated and consistent warnings, to build a system that reinforces those very inequalities. Education is meant to be the closest thing we have to a silver bullet, the most foolproof way of breaking the cycle of poverty. Is this the new normal that the SNP and the Scottish Government have been talking about? A new normal that astonishingly resembles the injustices of the old normal. When in opposition, Nicola Sturgeon said, it is the responsibility of the education minister to ensure smooth running of the exam process. He must now carry the can. How 13 years in government has changed the SNP tune. One of the longest periods of government in the UK and the list of failings on education continues to grow and grow, such that the SNP now refuse to submit to any international comparison, lest we discover that Scotland's young people are being shortchanged. But that's what's happening. The simple message that catapulted the SNP to their current position of dominance was stronger for Scotland. After seeing this week's shambolic and classist display, what a joke. And they're using our young people as the punchline. Recorded from the Times, 6th of August 2020. Pierre-Emile Hodgeberge set for Tottenham Hotspur move after Southampton accept offer. Tom Roddy. Pierre-Emile Hodgeberge is set to get his wish and complete a move to Tottenham Hotspur after their increased offer was accepted by Southampton. The 25-year-old midfielder will be Jose Marino's first signing of the summer at Spurs, as Kyle Walker-Peters, the right-back, moves the other way in a separate deal. Southampton had accepted a bid from Everton for Hodgeberge, but the Denmark international, who joined Southampton from Bayern Munich four years ago, was desperate to move to the North London club. There are conflicting reports on the value of the transfer, with Southampton claiming it is a £20 million agreement with add-ons, while the suggestion around Spurs is of a lower fee. Reports claim the difference between the agreement for Hodgeberge and Walker's Peters is £3 million. Southampton are believed to have paid £12 million for the right-back, 23, who was on loan at St Mary's for the second half of last season. Hodgeberge had one year left on his contract at Southampton and was removed from the role as captain when he declared his desire to leave. Meanwhile, Ledley King, the former Tottenham captain, will assist Marino next season after being appointed as the club's first team assistant. King, 39, will be involved in the running of training sessions at Hotspur Way and working alongside club analysts as well as assisting Marino on match days. He will also be involved in helping to guide academic players towards the first team. The former England centre-back, who came through the ranks at Spurs and made 323 appearances across 13 years, is regarded by the club's fans as one of their finest players of the modern era. However, his career was plagued by injuries, and he was forced to retire aged 31 in 2012. Since then, he has been working as a club ambassador. 
Marino wanted to appoint a figure who knows the club well and the Spurs head coach has developed a strong bond with King. I'm extremely pleased to be welcoming Ledley into the first team group as we continue our preparations for the new season, Marino said. He has a tremendous affinity with this football club and the fans appreciate just how much he has accomplished as a true Spurs man both on and off the pitch. We have developed a good relationship since I arrived and we hope to use his experience and insight to support the work we are doing with the squad. King will begin the new role when Spurs return to training towards the end of August ahead of the 2020-2021 Premier League season, which is due to start on September 12th. His role as an ambassador included making appearances for the Tottenham Hotspur Foundation as well as commercial appearances at home and abroad. King, who earned 21 England caps, is the most recent Spurs captain to lift a major trophy following Tottenham's 2008 League Cup final victory over Chelsea. Marino made a similar move during his time as manager at Manchester United when he brought Michael Carrick onto his coaching staff. King's arrival comes as the analyst Ricardo Formosino departs the North London club after a year in the role. Article from Glasgow Times, 6th of August 2020, Lifestyle. Little hope to open Finiston's store this winter as construction begins, by Stacey Mullen, audience and content editor. Construction has started on a new Little store in the city's Finiston. Construction firm Dickey and Moore will build the store on Finiston Street, which will create up to 40 new jobs when opened. The store fit-out is expected to take approximately three months, with a view to opening the store this winter. The store has an in-house bakery, 11 self-checkouts and car parking. Little GB's regional head of property, Gordon Rafferty, said there's been much anticipation for this new little store and it's great that we are now in a position to break the ground and start construction. We are extremely grateful for all the support that we have received so far and would like to thank everyone for their patience and understanding while we enter this new phase of the development. Lidl now have 100 stores in Scotland and recently opened a new retail distribution centre in Motherwell. Why should Tory MSP Ruth Davidson get ride on the House of Lords gravy train? An article by Stuart Patterson, political correspondent, published in the Glasgow Times of the the 31st of July 2020. Another 30 people are to be given jobs for life with a £300 a day allowance thrown in for good measure. At a time when millions are worried about their jobs and the future for their family, the already bloated and outdated House of Lords is to be swelled even further with a list of chums handpicked by Boris Johnson for services to the Tory party and for helping persuade Britain to vote for Brexit. How can anyone at this time think of spending time drawing up this list? is merited, and what legitimate purpose does the House of Lords serve? The latest batch of lifelong freeloaders is to include former Scottish Tory leader Ruth Davidson, 
One feature of the Lord is it is supposedly a place where those with something to offer but who are no longer elected politicians are sent to scrutinise legislation and continue to give the country the benefit of their years of political experience and wisdom. There are also some who are sent there for their expertise in other fields like medicine, law or business, and who certainly could have an argument made of having something valuable to offer. Then there are the Lord's Spiritual, Church of England bishops, and the remaining hereditary lords, whose only purposes seems to be to embarrass the notion of parliamentary democracy. There are 26 bishops in the House of Lords, God knows why they are in there, and 92 hereditary peers. There because they hold a title passed on to them from their father and his father and his father and so on until someone stole the land and gained a title. None of them certainly merit it in any legitimate sense. So, what expertise does Miss Davidson bring to the House of Lords? She has never been in government, never been in charge of a budget, never really had any actual power or responsibility whatsoever. While Tory leader, she spent the last four years as an Edinburgh MSP. Before that, she was a Glasgow List MSP, not that many people in either city would have noticed terribly much except when it came to looking for votes. Her stated loyalty to Glasgow quickly disappeared in a cloud of party jiggery-pokery to maximise Tory support. I could probably chop off several of my fingers and still count on the one hand Ruth Davidson's achievements as a Glasgow MSP. Having served less than ten years, had Ruth Davidson's Holyrood stint been a football career, she wouldn't even qualify for a testimonial match. But her reward for doing a lot of shouting and posing on tanks is to have a job for life in the UK's upper chamber. Given her reasons for standing down as Tory leader to spend more time with her partner and their son, it is interesting Miss Davidson has accepted a position and it remains to be seen how much time she actually spends hundreds of miles away in London. But it would be unfair to single out Miss Davidson in the list of those deemed worthy of a gift of a seat in Parliament. The list is believed to include former Tory chancellors Ken Clark and Philip Hammond. If we are to be stuck with an archaic institution that is riddled with patronage and no accountability to the public, then I suppose two long-serving politicians who have held posts at the top of government would pass the test. There are plenty old Labour government ministers in the House, like Alistair Darling, Helen Liddell and Jack McConnell. But it only serves the argument that the Lords is a retirement club for old politicians, where they can still bump into old pals and have a natter over a champagne lunch. A sort of minor's welfare club for toffs. Then we move from the ridiculous to the ludicrous. Ian Botham, former England cricketer, once one of the most famous and celebrated sportsmen in England, is also expected to be fitted out for the ermine-trimmed robes. 
The House of Lords cost somewhere in the region of £120 million and £23 million of that is on expenses and allowances. It has been reported that more than 110 peers claimed a combined total of over £1 million in expenses one year, but were not recorded as having made any written or spoken contribution in the House. Some are able to rack up more in allowances than an MP's annual take-home salary. The £305 a day doesn't include travel expenses or subsidised meals in the Palace of Westminster restaurants. Surely, somewhere in the House of Lords there can be someone who could make a coherent argument for a better use of that £120 million. There has to be a way of harnessing the skills and experience of those outside party politics to improve government without the absurd spectacle of landed gentry bishops and pals who have been booted from office clinging to power few of them ever deserved in the first place. Just don't expect the answer to come from any of those gifted their meal ticket for life by Boris Johnson. From the Glasgow Times. Times at Friday, the seventh of August, twenty twenty. From the news section. A wasted year of task force as the drug death body count rises. By Stuart Patterson. Last year, after record numbers of people died in drug-related deaths, the Scottish government set up a drugs death task force. It was a response to a tragedy that, Glasgow, that hit Glasgow harder than most cities and one which is intended to get a collection of brains together to come up with ways to stop people dying. Last July, we learned that 290 people had died in Glasgow in drug-related deaths, 1,187 across Scotland. One year on, the task force has published its annual report. And while there are no figures available this year, no one is suggesting that anything other than an increase to a new record high number of deaths. There are no figures because of a dispute about toxicology services, which itself needs action to resolve that's not been forthcoming. The task force was brought, in, brought together as people and organisations who were thought to have the expertise and knowledge to propose solutions. One year on, and the big news in the task force is it's announced that the Scottish Government is spending money asking other academics to carry out research into various aspects of drug policy. £1 million of taxpayer money for 10 projects to end up as reports on a shelf, to add to the countless reports that lie forgotten in shelves in universities and government offices. One of the research projects is into perceptions and attitudes towards drug consumption rooms. A study has just been published on on that which says, once it's explained fully, drug consumption rooms have public support. The Home Office accepts the evidence that will have benefits both for drug users and communities where people inject it. public injecting takes place. Only ideology and fear of alienating law and order voters is preventing it from endorsing them. We don't need another study. We need those with power to do so to open up one in this city Proof to those who are sceptical it works and challenge the Home Office and its pickiness. The other news was a strategy to tackle stigma faced by people addicted to drugs. Stigma doesn't help, 
and it most certainly exists with people blamed for their addiction, with no consideration of circumstances. But this is the drugs that are killing people in their hundreds now. We need to get our action and resources into programmes that would actually help those who are ready to receive it to stop taking drugs. The task force chair said they have been reviewing evidence and putting plans into action. But there is no action, certainly no urgent action that is needed to prevent more people being buried. The report mentions some of the achievements of the task force, but there are no achievements. When people are dying in this city in their hundreds and across Scotland at a rate of two dozen a week, there can be no achievement. The task force has set out a number of priorities over the next three months, six months and twelve months. The work of the task force focuses on naloxone, medical assisted treatment and public health surveillance, none of which is new. It talks about more data collection, information flows and setting out a plan to be implemented in a sustainable manner. Priorities for 12 months time include make recommendations regarding any necessary changes in agency guidance or statutory legislation. In that 12 months, another 1,200 people, likely more, will have died. The last 12 months since the task force was announced, nothing meaningful has happened, and for every month that nothing has happened, 100 people have died. The task force was set up to provide answers, and it's provided none so far. It is truly a tragedy of our time and a scandal that has not been given the attention it deserves by any government. And, so far, it is difficult to see that the Drug Death Task Force has done anything to change that. A number of people that are opposed to providing a name and contact number if they go to a pub, cafe or restaurant. They talk about privacy, personal freedom and then not to believe that lockdown was necessary. The First Minister said it was being considered if it will be the law that trace and tra- track and trace details are collected. It absolutely should be. Everywhere you go and every time you spend money using a debit or credit card, you're handing over personal information which is obtained by companies you don't even know exist. We're the most monitored generation ever. At least this data is harvesting for the benefit of all of our health. If any pub or restaurant is unwilling to offer to collect the data, then they should be closed. And if any customer refuses to provide details, they should simply be told to leave. Preferably followed by you're barred. And that article is by Stuart Patterson. Recorded from the Times, 7th of August 2020. Leagues 1 and 2 vote in salary cap, with points docked for breaches. Paul Joyce. Clubs in League 1 and League 2 face being docked points should they break new salary caps which have been set at £2.5 million and £1.5 million, respectively. The financial controls have been introduced today following separate meetings of the divisions and come less than 24 hours after the Professional Footballers Association warned the move could be unlawful. The new squad salary caps will include basic wages, taxes, bonuses, image rights and agent fees. While there was overwhelming support in League 2, there was more resistance from League 1 sides, with 16 clubs in favour, 7 against and 1 withholding their vote. Any playing contract entered into prior to the vote will be honoured as part of the transition process towards long-term financial sustainability. Players under the age of 21 will be excluded from the calculations. 
Importantly, an overrun tax concept is being included in an attempt to ward against flagrant breaches of the rules. There are various financial penalties for overspending of up to 5%, which would amount to an additional £125,000 in League 1 and £75,000 in League 2. Above 5% and clubs will be referred to a disciplinary commission, which would have the power to dock points. The PFA has called for arbitration with the EFL after claiming the vote was being rushed through and represented a seismic change in English football. Further discussions between the two bodies are now planned, although the EFL believes the measures will help safeguard the future of clubs. The term salary cap is an emotive one, creating the impression of a restrictive measure, but we are clear in our view that this is neither the objective nor the likely effect of these changes to EFL regulations, David Baldwin, the EFL Chief Executive, said. The financial impact of COVID-19 will be profound for EFL clubs and today's vote will help ensure clubs cannot extend themselves to the point that could cause financial instability. Talks are continuing with championship clubs in respect to amendments to their own financial controls. From the Glasgow Times, date Friday the 7th of August 2020, from the news section, Coronavirus Live. Scotland records 216 cases in the last seven days as cluster grows. This piece is by Jack Aitchison. 10.43am. Chancellor resists calls to extend furlough scheme. Chancellor Rishi Sunak is resisting calls to extend the furlough scheme with targeted measures to stave off widespread job losses, saying the support cannot go on indefinitely. The scheme that so far cost £33.8 billion, supporting the payrolls of 9.6 million workers during the COVID-19 crisis, has been tapering off before ending completely in October. But opposition parties are calling for the government to extend it for the hardest hit sectors and those plunged into local lockdown, warning the end to the scheme is a grave mistake. Mr Sunak visited Glasgow on Friday to praise the benefits of the programme has had to Scotland, Amid rising concerns, the crisis has strengthened the demand from independence in the nation. He warned, There is hardship ahead for many people, as he again ruled out extending the job retention scheme. It's one of the most difficult decisions I've had to make in this job, he told Sky News. I don't think it is fair to extend this indefinitely. It is not fair to people on it. We shouldn't pretend there is every case, in every case a job to go back to. He declined to extend the measures for sectors unable to return to work, such as the entertainment industry with theatres still shut. His trip north of the border was greeted by the SNP's Westminster leader Ian Blackford, warning thousands of people could lose their jobs unnecessarily. Cutting the furlough scheme prematurely is a grave mistake. By removing this crusade support in the middle of a global pandemic and withholding the financial power Scotland needs for a strong recovery, the Tories are increasing the risk of mass redundancies, he said. With more than 6,500 jobs lost or put at risk this week, Labour leader Sir Starmer caused calls for the targeted extension to, to prevent a job crisis not, on a scale not seen for generations. The Jobs Retention Scheme, however, is not the only programme aimed at boosting employment amid grim predictions for the economy. 
The Chancellor has set out a plan for jobs which includes measures to boost apprenticeships, stimulate eating out and job retain- retention bonus of £1,000 for every furloughed employee retained until January. 9.27am Warning of travel disruption amid concerns fans will enter quarantine list. UK Government Chancellor Rishi Sunak has warned holidaymakers of the risk of travelling abroad during the coronavirus crisis and my concerns France will be the next nation to be added to the quarantine list. He says on Friday that ministers will not hesitate in ordering travellers coming back from the countries with high COVID-19 rates to isolate for 14 days as Belgium, Mandora and the Bahamas lose their exempted status. Travellers returning to the UK from those three nations from Saturday must enter quarantine and there are fears those coming back from France could be next with cases there increasing. Mr Sunak told Sky News, It's a tricky situation. What I can say to people is that we're in the midst of a global pandemic, and that means there's always the risk of disruption to travel plans, and people need to bear that in mind. It's the right thing for us to do to keep everything under review, on a constant basis talking with our scientists, our medical advisors, and if we need to take it action, You've seen overnight that we will, of course, not hesitate to do that, and we're doing that to protect people's health. France's coronavirus rate has increased steadily in the past month to 13.2 new infections per 100,000 people, suggesting the spread is worse than in the UK, which is at the rate of 8.4. However, France still appears to be faring better than Belgium, which has seen its rate soar to 27.8. It is also as a rate lower than Spain's when it was added to the restriction list at around 27.4. 9.25am Travellers arriving in the UK from Belgium and Dora and the Bahamas will have to quarantine for 14 days from this weekend. Rising COVID-19 infection levels in the three countries mean they have been removed from the so-called travel corridors, which meant arrivals were exempt from self-isolating. Measures will come into force from Saturday, just as such a hundred years are confirmed. Brunei and Malaysia have been added to the government's travel corridor list following a decrease in confirmed cases of coronavirus, meaning arrivals in these countries no longer need to quarantine. 9.10am Scotland has recorded 216 new cases of coronavirus in the last week. The figures for the seven days to August the 5th are based on tests carried out in NHS laboratories and by commercial partners. It comes following a cluster outbreak in Aberdeen. The number of coronavirus cases linked to that outbreak, which led to lockdown restrictions being reintroduced in the city, has risen by 25 in the past day, Nicola Sturgeon said. The First Minister said 79 confirmed cases have now been identified and a further 30 are under investigation has been potentially connected to the 32 venues announced by the Scottish Government as possibly linked to the outbreak. A total of 233 contacts have been traced, and Ms Sturgeon warns she expects a further rise in infection numbers this Friday. And that was the articles by Jack Aitchison. From the Glasgow Times, date Friday the 7th of August 2020, from the news section. The system has failed us. School people's protest at George Square calling for urgent action over degraded exam results. This article is an exclusive by Ruth Sutter, multimedia journalist. <laughs> 
School pupils gathered at George Square today as they demanded the Scottish Government to take action over this year's degraded Scottish Qualification Authority, SQA, exam results. The newly adopted mar- marking approach used in the coronavirus crisis while all exams were cancelled meant that over t- 124,000 grade recommendations from teachers were rejected. The moderation system during the coronavirus outbreak used estimates made by teachers based on pupils' performance over a school year. Pupils have since dubbed the system as classes and a, a postcode lottery, as many have said they have suffered because they are from less affluent areas. The organiser of today's protest, Erin Bleakley, told the Glasgow Times, We are campaigning for a case of our voices being heard. We are being marked down unfairly because we live in what is described as lower class areas. It's not fair as pupils, and it isn't fair on the teachers at all either. They've been asked to make a judgement and they're being downgraded from that judgement. The Carntines and Andrews Secondary School pupil was distraught on Tuesday after learning her results were degraded. She now says this will affect her and other fellow pupils' opportunity as they leave school. The 17-year-old added, We've been downgraded based on where we live. It isn't fair that people from affluent areas can do quite bad in their prelims and come out with all A's. I think the teachers are just as disappointed as us. At the end of the day, the teacher has asked to make a judgement on us pupils and their work. It is a complete insult to them as professionals. I was devastated when I got my exam results through. I would be marked down for an A in geography, but I got a B. I was expecting to get a B in biology and I got a C. I was expecting a C in chemistry and I got a D. It was just heartbreaking. I couldn't contain myself on Tuesday. The thing is, people can go into exams as an A candidate and come out with a C. That means this year, people who were A candidates and didn't get to sit at the exam should have been A candidates, but they weren't, and it's based on an exam that didn't even go ahead. It was non-existent. It didn't happen. The case should have been based on our schoolwork, our progress, and things that we should have, we have done, that we have worked hard on. We should have been based on how hard we worked together through the year, but this is going down the drain now. This system has let us down and could potentially be life-changing for a lot of us. Local MSP Patrick Harvey earlier warned that 27 schools across Glasgow could have been marked unfairly in this year's SQA grading system. The Scottish Government is now urging disheartened pupils to appeal the results if they feel unhappy with the way they were marked. A spokesman said, Scotland's exams have never previously been cancelled, so the SQA had no alternative but to put in place an alternative certification model this year. Moderation is an annual process and ensures integrity of awards and fairness to learners. Teachers and lecturers applied their professional judgments and three out of every four grade estimates were not adjusted by the SQA. The SQA results show a narrowing of the gap between the most and least disadvantaged young people attaining grades A to C compared to last year and to a level below the average for the last four years. We know some young people feel they have been graded unfairly and we'd encourage anyone in that position to talk to the schools about the free appeals process. The SQA moderation was only one part of the process. The appeals will be based solely on each student's individual circumstances. Deputy First Minister John Swinney will make a statement to Parliament next week. And that piece was an exclusive by Ruth Sitter.
from the Glasgow Times date Friday the 7th of August 2020 from the news section Scottish Power sorry after grieving dad hit with £3,200 monthly bill this article is by Caroline Wilson senior reporter Energy giant Scottish Power has apologised to a grieving dad for meter glitch that led to his late daughter being pursued for thousands of pounds of electricity she hadn't used. Billy Hanlon's daughter Michelle passed away in April after a five-year battle with a rare form of lung cancer she was diagnosed with at just 29. Mr Hanlon said the utility firm continued to issue his daughter with estimated electricity bills after she moved out of her fa- into the family home after her condition worsened. The payment demands continued after her death, despite him notifying the firm's bereavement advisors. Last month's bill totaled £3,228.56, enough, Mr Hanlon said, to light a football stadium. He says his daughter was actually £1,000 in credit, and says the bill errors left her upset and distressed. Scottish Power has apologised, saying the demands were automatically issued and based on estimated readings, I said there was no excuse for failed callbacks to the family to resolve the issue. Mr Hanlon, who runs a hairdressing salon in the city's West End, said the problems began when his daughter moved from her flat in Springburn into the family home in Bishop Briggs around two years ago. He says Scottish Power continued to send out estimated bills, despite the fact that she was not using any electricity. He said... They were sending demands via email before she died and it was upsetting to her because she was, it was not getting sorted. After Michelle passed, we contacted the bereavement team but the person we talked to never informed the bereavement team. We then spoke to someone in the Glasgow team who passed it on to someone else. We could not understand why she had the credit for over £1,100 that this was not used for her bills. The last monthly bill we got said there was £3,228.56 overdue. Not even a football stadium would use that in a month. We tried to explain that Michelle had not lived at home for a year and was therefore not using power. They are the worst people we've had to deal with since Michelle passed. All the errors were Scottish power errors, not errors that Michelle or I made in reading the meter. The grief that caused Michelle before she passed away and the grief that continued to cause us we can't understand why they haven't just closed the account down. A Scottish Power spokeswoman said, We apologise for any distress this may have caused the Ms Hamlin's family and are keen to resolve the situation as soon as possible. Bills have been historically based on estimated readings and automatically issued. This is no excuse for failed callbacks and again we can only apologise. We are attempting to make contact with Ms Hamlin's father as a matter of urgency to bring this matter to a close. Michelle, who never smoked, was diagnosed with advanced squamous non-small cell lung cancer, NSCLC, in December 2015. The hairdresser paid tribute to his daughter after her death, saying her strength and courage was motivational to everyone who met her. And that piece was by Caroline Wilson. From the Glasgow Times, Friday the 7th of August 2020, from the Arts and Entertainment section. 
Deacon Blue Move Hydro Show to 2021. This piece is by Stacey Mullen, audience and content editor. Gaswitchian Legends Deacon Blue postponed their Hydro Show due to the coronavirus pandemic. The Pop Rockers, featuring singers Ricky Ross and Lorraine McIntosh, were due to play the venue on December the 4th. They will now perform at the Hydro on December 19th, 2021. The band said, It is with sadness that we all have to tell you, our 2020 Cities of Love Tour has been postponed to 2021. Tickets for the rescheduled shows remain valid and your ticket agent will be contacting you regarding your booking. We are longing to perform again. There is some good news. We have added new shows to the tour with extra dates in London and Manchester New shows in Dundee and Sheffield, and a bigger venue in Birmingham. Your original tickets are still valid for this show. Tickets for those shows are on sale now, and we are happy to announce that Jamie Lawson will be supporting us throughout the tour. We're working on bringing something to you before the end of the year that we hope you'll enjoy. More details on that soon. Sending you love and good health, Deacon Blue. The band, who formed in 1985, are best known for songs Dignity, Real Gone Kid and Fergus Sings the Blues. Original tickets remain valid. And that piece was by Stacey Mullen. And that was this week's Herald. Thank you for listening.